You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the last of our second service until August. We will resume full speed in August on two services, but next week we'll be meeting at 10 o'clock together in one service. Um, It was beautiful song that Bella shared with us and very meaningful. I'm not sure if you're aware. For those of you who are brand new, you wouldn't be aware, but Bella lost her sister who was one or two, one and a half, I think, years younger than her last year on May 4th. So it's been one year yesterday that Callie uh, Rose Moody came alive. This little girl who had been diagnosed with a brain tumor very early on and suffered through much of her life, suffered greatly passed from death into life. I was thinking about this. There was a little gathering yesterday, um, and and, and it was a beautiful tone. Chad had a few things to say that uh, were quite meaningful, but I was thinking about Callie. I'm confident she's with the Lord. Is it because she was a child when she got that tumor and she didn't understand, or was it because of her understanding she proclaimed Jesus as much as she can. And it is one of those t- questions that I would say the answer is yes. It's both. And Callie loved Jesus. She talked about him a lot. And I know she's running all over heaven today. So I was grateful for Bella's beautiful rendition of that song. Not only was it sung beautifully. And the worship team accompanied her <laughs> wonderfully as well. But it was done with such a heart of love. And it was a perfect uh, song in preparation for today's message, which we'll get to in just a moment. I just want to mention that if you're relatively new to Grace, we have a couple of things coming up in June that we'd love for you to attend. The first is Discovery Lunch on June 2nd. It'll be after the, the morning service. We'll have lunch uh, if you think you might be interested in that, our elders and our staff will be here. You can get to meet some of the people, ask questions. Nobody's going to be asked to introduce yourself in front of everybody. It's just real casual. We're sitting at tables together. Good opportunity for you to get to know us and, and again, ask any questions that you want. We need you to sign up. Um, steak and lobster. We don't want to buy too much. Steak and lobster. Pizza, I'm sure we can find somewhere. But we will... Uh, Have a nice time together. And then the following week, you really can go in depth about understanding who we are at Grace and our Grace Connection class. It'll be a four-week class beginning on June 9th uh, in the back in the youth room. And we will talk about what we believe here at Grace, who the Lord has designed us to be, the leadership structure, elder-ruled or elder-led church uh, is different for a lot of people. And we'll talk about the different styles of church governance and why we are where we are and our understanding of Scripture. So, once again, that does not in any way indicate that you will join the church. But if you ever want to become a member of the church, you have to go through 
that class. So it would be at least three out of four of those classes. And since it's in the summer, and since we're still trying to figure it out with two services, um, <clears throat> if you can only make two, even still come to that because we'll, we'll find a way to make up the other services with you. So I'll begin once again by asking you a question. No show of hands, although it would be interesting to see it. Are you better at giving or receiving help? Are you, do you like it when someone asks you, hey, we need to provide a meal, we need to help these guys move, we need to do this in the yard, fix up. Are you better doing that or having people help you? I'm guessing a majority, maybe a large majority of you would say, oh, I'd far rather give. Why are we natured like that? When someone says, hey, can you help over here? Yeah, I'll be glad to help. But then when you have a need and someone says, let us help you, it's like, no, 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 that's okay, I'll take care of it. We don't like receiving help. There's something that is in our nature that resists receiving help. Would you prefer to receive gifts or give gifts? Remember what it was like at Christmas morning? I'm guessing that a lot of you were getting around that tree almost every day, checking out the gifts under the tree. How many do I have? How many do my siblings have? How many does everybody have? Do I have my fair share? What's it like? One time my parents said that somehow, amazingly, one of my gifts was open. And I said, it peeked out at me. I don't know. I can't help it. I loved Christmas. And man, I went for those gifts. I was constantly trying to gauge who gets what. But when you get older... It's far more about the giving than the receiving of gifts, isn't it? I mean, you're much more exciting. If you've got grandchildren, man, you just love giving those gifts. And you love watching them open the gifts. But even that can become all about me. Uh, how do you feel when you have carefully chosen a gift for someone? And the response is, um, shall we say, less than enthusiastic. Thanks, Grandma. It was very sweet of you. It's like, what? Do you know? All of a sudden, it's not about this heart of love that gives the gift. This morning, we're going to think about the importance of receiving God's good gifts to us uh, with humble and full hearts. Now, when James says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Great is thy faithfulness, that beautiful song. Some of those words come right there. I don't think we acknowledge very often that indeed every gift comes from God. I'm as bad as anybody. But when we pray for food, we just tend to have a, a routine, right? And it's just kind of like, okay, this is what we do, and let's get on with it. And even though you're doing it, that's a great acknowledgement. But to really, in the fullness of your heart, receive this good gift from God that many people in the world today, and especially throughout history, have not taken for granted. How do we do receiving God's gifts? Last Sunday morning, we worked through the account of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, or as you may know her, the woman at the well. 
You know the story. Jesus went from Jerusalem to Galilee and he went right through Samaria, which is something a lot of Jews didn't do. They went way around, out of their way to keep from going through Samaria because they thought of the Samaritans as racially impure. So Jesus had this conversation with the woman and she's like, what? You want to talk to me? Samaritan woman? A, a, a man? And, and she found out quickly he was a religious man, a leader. <laughs> so it was confusing to her. And we approached the encounter last week from the woman's perspective. This week, we're going to look at it more from God's perspective. We're going to think about the, the multifaceted, multi-layered gift of God that Jesus implicitly offered to this woman. The subtitle of today's message is Receiving, Appreciating, and Responding to God's Gifts. So right from the beginning, let your heart be prepared to receive from God His good gifts. We'll begin with a great and beautiful gift of God, His Word to us. Our text today is John 4 verses 1 through 26, just like last week. But for our text this morning, we're going to read verses 7 through 10, and then we'll dive into the deep end. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 7. Jesus has already come, and he's sitting at the well. And verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And then in parentheses, we hear John's thoughts, the apostle John. He's sort of given commentary. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John's commentary, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Let's pray. Father, we will say along with the Samaritan woman in response to Jesus' offer, and we say so with far more meaning, Sir, give me this living water that I may not thirst again. Lord, may Jesus be exalted in our midst according to your plan and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. If you weren't here last Sunday morning, you may be a little bit lost uh, because we're not going to go straight through this story like we did last week. Uh, if you are interested in knowing a little bit more about what's going on in this story, go to the podcast. We have podcasts you can listen to, or you can go to the website and link to a manuscript that I use when I preach. It's not a word-for-word a, a -word transcription of the message, but there is a manuscript there if you prefer to read it and sort of think through some of the things that are being said. The various conversations that we encounter 
and John, I think, are just a snapshot of the entire conversation. Now, the very important components of the conversation are listed, but it's highly unlikely in, in the three to four or five minutes max that it took for us to read the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus and now Jesus and this Samaritan woman that they come as far as they do in that short period of time. Very likely there's some give and take that we're not seeing here, but ultimately we read the important components of the conversation. Uh, it, it may seem, if you think it, this is all that was said, that this is a really quick turnaround for the Samaritan woman in her conversation. She's getting it very quickly and all of a sudden going from really skeptical early in the conversation to accepting the notion that Jesus is the Messiah in such a, a short turnaround. Uh, early in the conversation, Jesus got her attention by telling her that she could have asked him for water that is far more satisfying than what the well could offer. And that he was bringing nothing less than the gift of God. The exchange that ensues may seem pretty simple, but there's a great deal of theological depth and complexity in these simple words of the, the discussion. This woman could not have had any idea that her life would change as dramatically as it did on that day. What about the dramatic moments in your life? Did you see them coming? Or did they just happen out of the blue? Well, probably a little bit of both. But a lot of times it's the things that just come at us out of the blue that dramatically change our lives. And we never see it coming, both good and bad. In this conversation, there's an indication that this woman has a decent level of religious understanding, although <clears throat> there was a whole lot that she did not know. And Jesus was happy to gently guide her to the place of understanding that would lead to eternal life. Spent a lot of time in commentaries this week trying to get my head around the theology, actually the last two weeks, and I'll be here again next week. The theology that's in, in, in this particular conversation between Jesus and the woman, I discovered three things. First, there's a lot deeper theology than may meet the eye initially. There's a lot more going on here than you might see. Second, uh, there are distinct differences of conclusion by conservative scholars. So you've got a lot of scholars who believe just as we do that the word of God is authoritative and they end up some over here, some over here. And third, while some of the questions that the text raises uh, have yes or no, right or wrong answers, it's either this or it's that, it's not as clear as we would like for it to be. And whether you land on A or B, both have support in all of Scripture. So it's not like if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. No, it's just probably going one direction or another. And wherever you land, it's not going to do any damage to scripture. Jesus and the woman were having a religious debate, but they were conducting their discussion using different sources. The Samaritan woman who starts out over here says, I believe the Pentateuch, but because they believed only the first five books of the Bible, 
that made a difference in the way that they understood the end times. And they get into somewhat of an end times discussion. Jesus is over here knowing everything about everything. He's God. He understands that all of the Old Testament, that what we know is the Old Testament, was in play for God's plan being fulfilled on earth. Now, he didn't um, uh, use the same exact Old Testament that we did. It was structured differently. The same words, but it was structured differently into law and prophets and writings. And it was organized a little differently. But he used the exact same Old Testament that we would in the conversations that he had with her. The Samaritans... Um, again, had a different idea about how things were going to play out because of their limited amount of Scripture. Uh, that may inform some of our conclusions or at least give us a clue about the meaning behind the words that Jesus and the woman used to make their points. Although verse 10 <clears throat> introduces an important idea, the full meaning is not given right in that particular uh, place. Jesus told the woman that the gift he offered included eternal life. Now, I'm not sure. This is one thing I, I guess I didn't run down. What the Samaritans believed about life after death. Sadducees also believed only in the Pentateuch. And they didn't believe that there would be life after death. So this... This offer of eternal life that Jesus made to the woman must have been shocking to her on a number of levels. But certainly for this, I am not the kind of person that gets offered eternal life by a religious leader. Especially someone who seems to be very close to God. But Jesus said, if you'll just believe, you will have living water. If you had asked me, I would have given you living water. What does he mean with living water? Well... It's almost certain when you look at the language later in John, in John chapter 7, that Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit when he speaks of living waters springing up as a well of water for eternal life. He's not talking about himself. He's not saying, I am the living waters, but he's pointing to the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die, be raised from the dead, and ascend back to heaven before the Holy Spirit could be sent? Why was that necessary? I don't know. I doubt you know either. We don't know. But it's just the way it is. God is a God of order and symmetry. And he has a, a way of doing things. I am very poor with math. But I love symmetry. I love it. If I go to your house and there's a lamp here and a lamp there. A post or whatever. Two paintings. And I'll, I'll think to myself. I just unconsciously, subconsciously think. Yeah, I really like that symmetry. Um, if I go to your house and there's a picture that's crooked, and if I'm not thinking and Allison doesn't stop me, I'm please forgive me if I go over and just kind of, you know, straighten it up a little bit. We'd sit in home group and we got too many blank pictures on the back wall. 
I'm sitting there thinking, I really want to go over there and correct that thing. And then I don't think about it the rest of the week. So next Sunday night, I'm like, oh, there's that picture I need to straighten up. Well, what's the point of all this? The point is that God has an order and a structure for all of life that glorifies him but also benefits us greatly in ways that we cannot understand. So when Callie talked about this more in the first service because the Moody's were here, they left after, after Bella saying a little while ago, but the Tallies and the Moody's entered really turbulent and sad and dark waters together almost. I mean, two months after Linda was diagnosed with a tumor, they called, Sarah called and said, Callie has a tumor. And we, just, we were just both silent crying on the phone. And our circumstance was much different from theirs. And how do you make sense of this? There's only one thing you can do when something like that happens. You say, I will praise you in this storm. Why? How can you say that? Because he's a God of structure and order. And though it doesn't make sense to us in the moment, it makes perfect sense in his timing. And it'll never make sense. A lot of the things that we endure right now will never make sense to us in this life. For Sure, when we get to heaven, when we are living eternally with Jesus, it's going to all not only make sense, it's going to be beyond anything we could have ever hoped or dreamed. Good, which is why he is worthy of our trust. And which is why we should say, Nevertheless, your will be done, no matter what. So, when we get to John 14 and 16, we're going to learn a lot more about the Holy Spirit. For now, though, let's think of some of the possible connections in this story. And we'll come back around to where I just was, which wasn't in the notes, by the way. But... What were the connections that Jesus intended for the woman to make when he offered her living water? In Jeremiah 2, God accused his people of forsaking him, and they were forsaking living waters. And he said, not only that, you've built containers to hold water, and they're broken. They'll never hold water. And we do it all the time, don't we? We walk away from God saying, I know better how to take care of my life. I know how to take care of myself. I can find my own water. I don't need you. They can never, you can never be refreshed from broken pots. It's kind of like, what a, you know how you drink soft drinks and it, oh, it just tastes so good. But it's not the same as water just doesn't do you the same level of good that water does. You'll recall from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. 
that Jesus expected when he said, if you want to be born again, you have to be born of water and the spirit. He would have expected Nicodemus to understand that he was referencing Ezekiel 36, where the Lord said, I will cleanse my people with water and put my spirit within them. So you see the connection, right, between Jesus and living water, the Samaritan woman. The only concern that I have with making that connection, which almost everybody makes in my study, is that the Samaritan woman did not acknowledge that Jeremiah and Ezekiel Ezekiel were sent as messengers from God. So if Jesus was not referring to them, is it possible that he could have found something in the Pentateuch that... The part of the scripture that she believed that that would have excited or incited this thirst in her to know more about God? Could it be that Jesus was pointing her to Exodus 17 and the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness at Oreb from which water came and the people drank? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul points back to that rock. You know, Moses struck it twice, once In obedience to the Lord, later he struck it when God had said, speak to the rock. And it was just that one act that kept him out of the promised land. Why do you think that is? I think it's because the law will never take you into the promised land. No matter how close you get to doing everything just right. But Moses struck the rock according to God's command and water flowed out of it and the people drank And 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 5 tell us that Christ was the rock. So what is the significance of Christ being struck and water flowing from him? Could Jesus have been pointing to his crucifixion, coming crucifixion, just in the same way that he had done with Nicodemus? Remember when Nicodemus came to him and he's trying to figure it all out. And Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now Jesus is saying to the woman, just like the rock was struck and water flowed, if you believe, if you receive this gift of God that is being offered to you, you will have eternal life. I think it's highly possible, although the woman was in no better position to understand the crucified Messiah than was Nicodemus. Now look, let's just think a little bit about what's going on. And this, next week we're going to talk about the mission and the woman uh, going to witness to all the people. But let's say Jesus is over here and the, and the Samaritan woman's on the other side of this, of this rug up here. And, and Jesus says, living water, you know, I'll offer you living water and eternal life. And she's like, living water? What are you talking about? I mean, I don't, live, okay, well, give me this water then so I don't have to come back to the fountain and I won't ever thirst again. <clears throat> and Jesus starts pointing to God's working with men and he's talking about the Pentateuch. He's talking about a place where she understands. And then she begins to move a little bit toward her. And then he really takes a big step when he identifies her sin. And he says, 
call your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's, you're right. You've, you've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your husband. I was thinking about this coming over this morning. About our sin. Think about this woman's sin was probably great. She was living in, in an immoral relationship and she knew it. She was miserable probably on the inside. And it was a mercy though for Jesus to identify her sin. He had already offered her eternal life. And now he's saying, but you're going to have to deal with this sin. And I thought too, it's quite interesting. Sometimes I think, well, God will forgive this sin, but he won't forgive this other sin. You know, because this other one is too big. If you think like that, it, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of sin. God is holy and righteous, and there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves worthy for him to say, Ben Grumbach, I am so proud of you, man. You come right on into heaven based on what you have done. I'm following. I am the eye. You know, my eyes all over Michelle Eisenberg. She is a great one, and I think she's worthy. None, none of us gets that. None of us is worthy. And so <clears throat> when Jesus identified her sin, he's essentially saying, in spite of that, I will accept you. So she begins to move toward him. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And they end up meeting in the same place. There's a distinct pattern that occurs in, in, in John over and over. Especially in, in chapters 3, 4, and 6, we're going to see this pattern. Jesus employs a metaphor to make a spiritual point. But the point is initially misunderstood. In some cases, it seems to be willingly misunderstood. You know what that's like, don't you? You say something and somebody says, what do you, what do you mean by that? They want to misunderstand. You're like, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. But if you want to misunderstand something, you can surely do that. Eventually, though, the depth and richness of meaning are multiplied many times over when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings understanding. It is true that all these metaphors make much more sense to us than they did to the original hearers. I'm not sure if this is going to encourage you or not, but we're going to go a lot deeper on this in the, in the home groups this week. If it is true that Jesus initially employed Pentateuch language that the woman could understand. He met her where she was. If he said, okay, let's just don't even talk about those others. Let's talk about the scripture that you know and that you receive. It is also true that when she used the term Messiah, she was in full Jewish mode in the conversation. You know the, the, the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus was constantly are gradually moving towards her, and she was gradually moving toward Jesus. Samaritans did not use the term Messiah. She comes to the end and she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He is who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, kind of like you've already done, Jesus. You've been telling me all about me. The, the Samaritans used the, the term Taib, which means restorer. There's a whole lot here, and in the first service, I ended up going into the details. 
Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal are mountains that are close together. Very likely Jesus and the woman were in that territory. You could probably see Mount Gerizim. And she kept saying, our fathers think we're going to worship in this place. In, in Deuteronomy 11, Moses had said, the Lord had told Moses, tell this to the people. When you go into the land, six tribes get over here in front of Mount Gerizim. Six tribes get in front of Mount Ebal. And the people at Gerizim are going to pronounce the blessings of those who follow the law. For those who follow the law. And Mount Ebal, they're going to pronounce curses on those who do not follow the law. So the Samaritans, as so many of us do, latch on to the good things and just not worry about the bad things, not worry about the curses. So there, she's saying, essentially what the Samaritans would say is that one day Taib is going to come and he's going to restore all things as they were. And all the blessings of the law are going to flow to us, to our people. That's kind of the way most people function. You worship the God of your land. Now in olden days, there was a way you could tell if your God was greater than other gods. You remember what it was? If we whoop your tail, then we take your people captive. We take your women to be our wives. Then our God is greater than your God. Samaritan said, we've got it figured out. Nobody else has it. And Jesus said, you know what? The Jews were right. You guys were wrong. But none of that matters now. No longer are we going to worship God here and there. And she's beginning to see and says, Okay, the Messiah is coming. And he said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see the words I've got highlighted here. I am. We don't consider this one of the seven places that Jesus says, I am. In John 7, although the construction in the Greek is just the same, ego e me. Jesus is essentially telling this woman, God stands before you. And she threw herself wholly and completely on Jesus as Messiah. She gave up her own notions about salvation, and you, you've had this happen in your witnessing encounter. Some of you have. You share about Christ, and they're like, I don't, I don't buy that stuff. Just be patient. Give it time. Before you know it, conversation is happening, and, and they're edging closer and closer to Jesus. And then one day, they're proclaiming him from the housetops, from the rooftops. We need to back up two verses uh, for one last theological point before we think about the gifts of God. Verses 23 and 4 have created a lot of debate. But once again, either side you land on is not going to do damage to the larger truth of Scripture. Jesus said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the debate about do you worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim is no longer in play. From now on, Jesus said, all God's people, whether Jews or not, will worship the Lord 
if they worship him rightly in spirit and in truth. God is looking for such worshipers. When Jesus says that we must worship God the Father in spirit and truth, do you think the spirit should be a little s? As in our hearts worship God with a full and devoted heart, a true and devoted heart? Or does he mean that this is a capital S, God is spirit as in the Holy Spirit? Scholars are divided on this uh, and the ESV translators have made their own uh, decision about that. How do you know that? Because it's a little s in there. God is spirit. And we who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So likely God is not saying God is the Holy Spirit. But rather God is spirit. And in the same sense uh, that he says God is love and God is light. Look, I understand why some people want to translate verse 24 to say that this is the Holy Spirit. Because it makes sense that if we worship the Lord, we do it according to truth of Scripture. And we do it according to the Holy Spirit of God. The Old and New Testaments, neither testament finds very much distance between the Spirit and the Word. It's why it's almost helpful for us to think of the Spirit and the Word as inseparable. The Holy Spirit will never tell you something that has not already been told to you in the Word of God. It, they don't operate apart from each other. Scripture means nothing without the Spirit giving us understanding. And the Spirit will not work apart from the truth of Scripture. And in fact, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is the author of, the, of Scripture. He moved on holy men of God and led them to write the things that they did right. If, though, you were to say, God is Spirit and those who worship Him must worship according to the Holy Spirit and truth. Because other scholars say that truth here is most certainly Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. I am truth, he said. Now you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'm in too deep. Let's get out of this place. Where does this leave us? If nothing Else, it ought to leave us with grateful hearts that an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God like this makes relationship with Him so simple that anyone can understand and believe. But at the same time, this God who makes this relationship very simple is also. So deep that if we dive in beneath those waters on which we find salvation. And we can find beauty and richness and depth of relationship that we had no idea was possible. And you know what happens at that place? We worship the Lord in spirit and truth. 
Well, I assume you will believe me when I tell you that we've barely scratched the surface on the theology that's that's here in this text. There's so much more about connections with the Garden of Eden and temple worship and baptism and the giving of the law and a lot more that I've left out this morning. If David Calvert were preaching, he would emphasize the importance of this text in speech act theory and how it is relevant to the ways that we understand God working through the gospel. It's a rich and powerful text, far greater and deeper than just the encounter between the woman and Jesus. Jesus offered her the gift of God. And as we begin to move toward the Lord's table, we can identify in this text seven gifts of God that could easily be stretched into ten. And if we went to the rest of Scripture, the gifts are probably innumerable. Just like John says at the end of his gospel. If everything Jesus did, I don't suppose the whole world could contain the books that would have to be written. And we could say, if we exhausted, tried to exhaust the gift of God, gifts of God, the books couldn't, the, the world wouldn't have room to contain all that we would receive from God. So when we receive and respond to these gifts... We'll experience him far more fully. But before we get started, I just want you to, just for a moment, just think about this. None of the gifts that we're going to talk about can be earned. They're gifts. I am inspired to give Allison gifts because... Of her love for me. And how happy she makes me. <laughs> I am a happy man. And I love to give gifts to my wife. Those are not the kinds of gifts we get from God. It's just that he loves us in spite of us. And that in turn ought to turn our hearts entirely toward him. And love him with all of our hearts. And then you really do have some kind of relationship going on. What are the gifts? First, the gift of God's love in Jesus. We can just go home. Don't, no, sit down. I saw some of you thinking that's a good idea. Did the Samaritan woman seek Jesus or did he find her? Obviously, he comes to the well and she, he's the one that initiates the conversation. But after a while, we're beginning to wonder, is he making an offer or is he making a statement about the gift that he is giving her? Michael Horton says this about God the Father in this text. As spirit. God is unavailable to human investigation apart from his own initiative and mediation. Do you get that? This is a profound statement. This is from a book called The Christian Life that is like this and this. I mean, no pictures on the pages either. A diagram every now and again. But it is a, it's tough sledding. It's just one statement he makes. It feels like it's in passing. As spirit, God is unavailable to human investigation 
apart from his own, God's own initiative in mediation. You know what mediation is? It's a go-between. So, in other words, I cannot know God on my own. I can't just sit down and say, I'm going to figure this out. <clears throat> One of the gentlemen who, two gentlemen who really affect the way that we think in, in the West in our day, uh, Descartes and Kant, Immanuel Kant, Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant. Both of them said, I'm just going to take away all outside influences and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to meet God at that level. What's the problem with that? Yourself gets in the way, right? And you begin to create a God in your own image. Rene Descartes actually went into this, there were these large ovens, and he went in there so he could close himself off from the world. And that's why some people think that his ideas were half-baked. He was in the oven, you know. So, um, and Michael Horton is essentially saying this, you want to figure out God? I'm sorry you can't. Unless God comes to you, you can't know him. This is going to play into a lot of what we're saying from here out, which is not going to be that long, I promise you. But mediation, if I'm in trouble, I'm going to ask Jim McLaughlin for legal advice. If I'm in legal trouble, I'm going to ask him for advice. Hopefully, he's going to point me to a good lawyer who is going to represent me. He's going to mediate the law. Jim can't. He can't. That's what I mean by that. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it like it sounds. <laughs> I mean, it might be true, but I didn't mean it that way, right? I'm just kidding. I really didn't. <laughs> That's funny. I'll hear about this for a long time. So, but, but Jesus, in a sense, represents God to us. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, Scripture tells us. If a lost person wants to know about God, he has to have some mediation. We represent God to the lost person. We are the ones who take the message of God to them. In a sense, this is mediation, this table, this morning. We, God represents himself to us at the table, in the elements, as we partake of the bread and the wine. This woman would have never been open to Jesus. Unless he first pursued her. You think about this meeting in the middle that we talked about a while ago. That's the way we should do with lost people too. Don't come in always like a fire truck. You know, trying to put out a fire. Meet the person where they are and move toward the middle, and Christ is in the middle. Not that you compromise anything. Jesus didn't compromise. He said, look, we got it right, you got it wrong. But that's it's beside the point, because here's the reality. If you're going to worship the Father, you have to worship in spirit and truth. And unless we, now think about this, unless we proclaim the gospel to the lost, they will not be saved. That doesn't mean if you... Never witness to anybody again. They're going to be 20, 30, 200 people go to hell because you didn't witness to them. God will make sure that it happens. It's our privilege to be a part of that process. 
But if someone doesn't take the gospel to them, they will not be saved. Even the Gideon Bibles that are in the hotels, a lot of times they have the plan of salvation, and somebody put that Bible there. God uses us as his mediators. So, it's a great responsibility on us, and, let it, and yet it's God's initiative, God's doings. Instead of trying to work out what goes where, who's responsible, is it a gift, do I... Just understand this. Just know that if you know Jesus, it is because God loved you and pursued you and saved you through Jesus. There is no other way. Second, the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Forgiveness may be my favorite word in the English language. And the Bible makes it clear that there are no good works that will get us there. And all of us must be forgiven if we are going to receive eternal life. But we are forgiven for Christ's sake. Third, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I imagine when angels in heaven want to watch a comedy, they say, let's watch humans. Uh, they're pretty good. We're good at it. And one genre of comedy that we're particularly good at is the way that we overreact to the abuse of something that is good. You know, somebody takes something good and they abuse it, and then we just, oh, we go all the way the other way. And, and, and it's that way with the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we see the abuses uh, that the Holy Spirit is oftentimes elevated way above the Father and the Son. And we know as we get to John 14 and 16 that the Spirit points to Jesus. He points people to Jesus. And the gifts of the Spirit we see abused. And so we say, let's just not talk about the Spirit. Let's, let's talk about the Father and the Son. This is a beautiful gift to us. And I can't wait until we get further in the book Begin to understand just how beautiful the gift of the Holy Spirit is to God's children. Fourth, the gift of truth in God's word. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Is Jesus truth or is the word truth? Yes, we can agree on that. Fifth, the gift of understanding. This woman's understanding was not immediately, but a not immediate, but eventually it was complete. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, it's because God has opened your blind eyes and given you understanding. If you don't get all of this, if you are saying, I, don't, I hear about Jesus, but I don't get it, ask God to give you understanding. If you do understand all that I've said this morning, then you're in better shape than I am. You have been given the gift of understanding. Thank God for that. And don't be arrogant about it. No place for that. Sixth, the gift of informed worship. Aren't you glad that God didn't leave it for us to figure out? He's instructed us, and we have all that we need in Scripture. Last, the gift of purpose. Before this encounter with Jesus, we can guess that the woman endured a painful existence. She laughed, she cried, 
She found pleasure where she could. But mostly, she was empty. Think about this. Five husbands rejected over and again. Worthless. And Jesus loved her. And on the day, the day that she met Jesus, she became as effective an evangelist as John the Baptist. Half the town gets saved. This woman was given purpose. I was saved when I was 18. And if you had asked me for years, if you had said, define what salvation means to you in one word, I would have said purpose. I would say, Jesus now... Just because I realize that everything is wrapped up in Jesus. I can promise you this. If your life is meaningless. If your life is confused. And you have no sense of how it's going to ever make, a diff- make any sense at all. Jesus offers you eternal life. Believe in him and trust him to give you eternal life based on what he did on the cross. And thus we come to the table. I'm going to ask the deacons and elders, if they would, to come. The worship team to come. All this talk of eternal life and the gift of God, it's wrapped up in Jesus. It's because of what he has done for us. I think we need you, Brian. In Luke 22, we're told when the hour came, he reclined at table. And the apostles with him. And he said to them. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer. For I tell you I will not eat it. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks he said. Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Until the kingdom of God comes. There's so much to be said about that. But just. Let's. Reduce it to this for the moment. First of all, do you sense Jesus' love and in community with these people? We talked about this earlier, about Chad saying last night, talking about the importance of the community in helping the Moody's through this difficult time they've been through. And I thought about it. We live and we die and we live in community. It's a blessing from the Lord. Jesus... Love these disciples. And he knew what he was getting ready to do. To die on our behalf. And he said. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to them saying. This is my body. Which is given for you the gift of God. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup. After they had eaten saying. The cup. This cup that is poured out for you. Is the new covenant. In my blood. There's a new way. 
and it's through me. It's God's covenant to us. And so as we come to this table, may our hearts be nourished with this meal. And nourished on Christ as we partake. Father, we acknowledge that we were nobody and nowhere before Jesus. We come to you as needy people, but also as blessed people who have been brought into the covenant family of God through faith in Christ. And as we partake of the bread and then the juice, the fruit of the vine, we confess our sins before you even now at this table, knowing that they are freely and, and fully forgiven in Christ. And we ask your blessing as we partake of this meal. It's in the name of Jesus that we do so. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.